0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code wondery at byte.com. That's dot e.com. Start your confidence journey today with byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of Kurt Fairs in China, produced in partnership with SUP China. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces we feature on our website. Sign up for sub access, and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in Washington, D.C. today at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Jeremy Goldkorn was supposed to join from Nashville, but he instructed me to say that in a July phone call he had with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, he never once promised free sub-China access subscriptions in exchange for an investigation into a certain rival China newsletter editor. Uh, But he says, hey, he'll be back next week. The transcripts will be, or the partial transcript will be available.
0: Summary of the transcript, <laughs>
1: right? The summary of the transcript, inshallah. As we near the end of September, demonstrations in Hong Kong that began in earnest in June will soon be entering their fifth month, and while in the last couple of weekends we've seen some diminution in intensity and in the numbers of participants, they are by no means at an end. We've had the pleasure on this program of speaking twice with Anthony Daparan, who's written a book on the history of Hong Kong's protest, and he gave us a great on-the-ground perspective on what was happening earlier in the summer, but today we're going to look at some additional perspectives on the situation in the special administrative region. Uh, So today, we'll hear the views of some of this leaderless movement's more prominent figures, uh, five of whom were actually here at CSIS recently. They're making the rounds in D.C. We'll talk about U.S. policy options with Hong Kong, and uh, one piece of legislation in particular now that's moving through Congress, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Uh, We'll consider Xi Jinping's apparent inaction on Hong Kong to date and talk about what he might have done... And still might do. We're also going to look at, at what shapes the attitudes of, of many mainlanders toward Hong Kong and why not only has there been an absence of sympathy or empathy, but actually apathy or, or even downright antipathy. That's a lot of pathies toward uh, Hong Kong protesters. Uh, we've seen even in, in in communities in diaspora in many cities around the world. Uh, and we will talk about press coverage of the demonstrations from the PRC media, the so-called Western media, and outlets like the South China Morning Post, and uh, lots of important issues related to media coverage. So to talk through all of this, I have come to CSIS today with the express purpose to consult with its newly-minted Freeman Chair, a dear old friend of our podcast, the wise and deeply-informed all-around swell dude, Jude Blanchette. Jude, man, welcome back to the show, and thanks for hosting us here today.
0: Thank you very much, Kaiser, pleasure to be here.
1: Um, so tell us first about this new gig of yours, this Freeman Chair at CSIS. It is named, I, I assume, for the illustrious Chaz Freeman Jr.
0: It it it, it is not. It is not. Uh, no, it it is not. It um, should be. Damn it. So no, uh, this is the Freeman Chair, which dates back to the uh, early 1990s, is is named after uh, the Freeman family, but there is un- undoubtedly there's some uh, perception there that that Chaz Freeman Jr. is a uh, was related to it, but uh, his son actually held the Freeman Chair.
1: Oh wow! Uh, so Charles Thus Freeman doubling was, the confusion. Yes, <laughs> doubling the
0: confusion. So Charles Freeman was the Freeman Chair in the uh, in the the aughts.
1: Ah, oh, okay, right. Uh, father and son both, and the daughter. I, I'm huge fans of, as we all know. So, what what is the Freeman Chair? What is it that you do besides a lot of fundraising? <laughs>
0: So the Freeman Chair is just one center of China activities here at CSIS. We have a lot going on. Uh, Bonnie Glazer and the China Power Project, Scott Kennedy, who I'm sure many listeners know, who's now at the new trustee chair for Chinese business and economics. Mm-hmm. Freeman Chair, we're going to be focusing on party governance. Mm-hmm. So attempting to understand uh, the the you know, internal workings of the Communist Party, but also looking at Chinese domestic policy For its own sake, uh, recognizing that China uh, as a country that deserves a focus on policy development and social developments in the country, not only as they pertain to U.S.-China relations, but because it's just important for its own sake.
1: Well, we are always happy to see when uh, members of our secret cabal move into the (laughs) corridors of power. So congrats, man, on the new gig. Thank you very much. So, Jude, let's start with this visit last week. You had five prominent Hong Kong activists, three of them uh, I know fairly well. I think you hosted Denise Ho. I don't know how she pronounces her name. Ho? Ho? Denise Ho, yes. Okay. okay. I, mean, I don't even know what it is in Chinese, but Denise Ho, uh, Joshua Wong, and Nathan Law uh, here at CSIS. Now, in case some of our listeners haven't been following Hong Kong too closely, maybe we should ID them. I mean, Denise Ho is... Probably well, she's very well known. Obviously, uh, she's a singer and an actor who's not just been active on behalf of of Hong Kong, uh, but also you know was a, a, has been a real leader. Probably the first uh, prominent celebrity to to come out, and she's been working on LGBTQ plus rights. Of course, Joshua Wong, everyone knows, you know, uh, he was the very young student activist who founded Scholarism and demasisto. Uh, and he was jailed in 2017, but released right sort of before the crest of the current demonstrations in a very timely release that was in June of this year. Uh, what about Nathan Law? You want to talk a little bit about Nathan?
0: Yeah, Nathan Law, who also came to prominence in the umbrella protests in 2014 and was uh, elected as a member of LegCo. And the youngest ever, uh, but was, uh, had his seat, st- has his, seat, his seat stripped and, and spent some time in jail and is now uh, studying for a master's at, at Yale University. And just quickly, the two other individuals we had were, were Brian Leong, who was, uh, folks will remember, after the demonstrators uh, stormed Ledgeco, he was the protester who stood up and, and uh, took, took his, his mask off, off. Right. show his face. Um, and Jeffrey No, who's a Ph.D. student here in Georgetown, but is also at Democisto.
1: Okay, right. Jeffrey's giving a talk tonight. He's one of Jim Millward's students, I know. Okay. Right, right.
0: For think tank collegiality, I, I, I must stress that uh, this, this come, came by way of, uh, of of another helpful think tank here in D.C., which was hosting them. I'm not sure if that's public knowledge, so I'll, I'll leave the name off, but just want to say it was their, uh, their help uh, that, that we got them over here to, to do uh, the podcast last Friday.
1: An Anonymous shout out. Uh, what brings them to the states? Is it that they're trying to drum up support in Washington for the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, or just may- basically to bolster American support for their cause more broadly.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a crucial moment for the protesters, um, with a lot of students going back to school um, and and a feeling that there was some of the some of the momentum behind the protest was abating a little bit. You start to see uh, momentum here in Washington D.C. for the passage of, as you mentioned, this this Human Rights and Democracy Act. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but just to say that the The five individuals were were, uh, holding a series of meetings across town, uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, most prominent of which, to try and push for increased support in the United States, both at a symbolic level, but also in terms of passage of the bill. And I should say, if you saw uh, President Trump's speech yesterday at the UN, he was using language that was his most sophisticated to date uh, on on the situation in in Hong Kong and what the U S policy was or ex- expectations were for for China, so I should say that if the visits last week were an attempt to raise the uh, awareness level here in Washington D C, it's it's certainly done that.
1: Let's talk a little bit about this bill, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, the H K H R D A. It's it's a bill that was introduced by Representative Chris Smith and by Senator Marco Rubio, if I'm not mistaken, They're both Republicans. What's the progress of the bill? What does it actually do? What does it actually commit the United States to? Or what would it?
0: Yeah, so the, the bill in its current form was introduced uh, earlier in the summer, just after the protests uh, had started. But I should say this is not the first time that the bill has been introduced. It It was originally written. Uh, in response to the umbrella protests in 2014, but probably because of the uh, the petering out of the umbrella protests and because U.S.-China relations were at a much different point way, 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 way back a couple of years ago, <laughs> um, the bill didn't get much traction right. but was revived uh, earlier this summer. And um, a key piece of legislation we have to talk about if we're going to make sense of this one is there was a Hong Kong Policy Act which was originally passed in, in 1992. Right. Remember, that's a period just after uh, 1989, the US government was looking to uh, put some sanctions in place and wanted to carve out Hong Kong and protect its, its status, essentially keep it free from any collateral damage. And so the Policy Act created or treated Hong Kong as a separate essentially gave it a separate trading status. That's right. Um, So it would be treated separately from any sanctions or tariffs, for example, that would be placed on mainland China. Hong Kong would be exempt for those. It was understood starting in 2014 that that status was potential leverage for the United States as it was trying to uh, change China's calculation on Hong Kong. And so at the core of this, uh, at the core of the Human Rights and Democracy Act is the, the possibility of revoking Uh, the revoking that status. Um, It would give, uh, the US government would annually review uh, developments in Hong Kong. And if it determined that there had been a significant erosion of Beijing's pledge to uh, give a high degree of autonomy and treat Hong Kong separately, In other words, if Hong Kong started to be de facto and de jure treated just another city in in mainland China, then you would stop treating it as a a separate entity. Right. That Um, makes sense. The bill goes further than that, though. It it also looks to potentially put sanctions on specific individuals in Hong Kong who are denying uh, the rights of the protesters to, to peacefully demonstrate. Um, and then, again, this, this annual review that, uh, that that Congress, or excuse me, that the U.S. government will do uh, to evaluate developments in Hong Kong. But really, it's the revocation of uh, the separate status of Hong Kong in terms of uh, customs duties that, that would be, some are calling it the, the nuclear option.
1: Right, right, right. So, Jude, is it your sense that, that these young people, these five people who are here, have a clear idea of what they're getting into as they wade into American politics. Uh, do you think they have a realistic sense of what the U.S. might actually be able to do on behalf of their cause, or are they maybe overestimating how much of a white knight the Trump administration or Congress even could be?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think this is... Um look even folks here in dc have a hard time understanding the politics of dc so to the expectation that that these these individuals are going to have a uh, uh, an accurate read on on the evolving politics not only in terms of uh, republicans and democrats but just the politics of china of which th- clearly the the this bill is um a, a part of the overall shifting in the united states in terms of how we think about china but their calculus i think is any attention is good attention um, if if the pressure is going to stay on Beijing and if momentum is going to continue to build on the streets in Hong Kong, where it's most important, the symbolism of U.S. support, even if it's a statement like Trump said yesterday, without much of a strategy behind it, would still be a welcome addition of pressure um, on, on Beijing.
1: So I haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast that you actually did, right, uh, accompanying the event. Uh, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of the highlights from their visit were and tell us as candidly as your natural tact will allow what you made of each of them. Um. Yeah, I. I was.
0: Uh, yeah. How do I. How do I. How do I give you my assessment, <laughs> So. So first of all, I want to say that it's extraordinary to have you know a, a group like this who's able and who's doing this much on 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 a world stage with this much scrutiny, mm-hmm. and you know, these are, with the exception of, you know, Denise Ho, these are individuals who are, you know, just kind of in, in college age, if that. And so uh, to have an individual like Joshua Wong, for example, who gets most of the media attention, but before he came here, he was detained in Hong Kong, then went to, you know, went to Taiwan, and then went to Germany, where he met with the foreign minister, um, you know, for, for a, uh, an individual of his age, that's pretty, pretty extraordinary. I, I certainly thought that there was a differing degrees of perspective amongst the group mm-hmm. and that some uh, were articulating a vision that I think was much more about longer-term issues of Hong Kong's full and eventual return to the mainland China, and that was really where their eye was focused. And then there were others who were thinking more tactically about just getting through the next couple months and how do we um, how do we shape Beijing's playbook in such a way that we have a higher likelihood of uh, getting more of the demands uh, th- through beijing and i think that's as they said in the, in the podcast you know the real crucial issue for all of them is hows beijing going to uh, potentially intervene or act over, over the next couple months and i think that's an extraordinarily volatile situation so you know looking at this at the macro level you've got a hong kong government which is i think confused and indecisive you have a group of protesters who themselves are You know, you've got various factions within the protest movement. It's it's leaderless, but you have individuals like Joshua Wong who are symbolically the head of it. You have a U.S. – you know, you have an administration here which hasn't taken the clearest stand uh, on the issue of Hong Kong. You've got developments in Taiwan where this is playing into the election there. So all all in all, this is a really volatile situation that these individuals are weighing in on.
1: And uh, you actually put that question quite directly to Joshua Wong, asking him about uh, 2047. What was his response?
0: Yeah, this is one where it's tied up with how how you're thinking about this issue about what happens to Hong Kong after 2047 is really an issue about where you expect China to be in 2047. I think it's clear that, that Joshua... Uh, has a fairly pessimistic outlook mm-hmm. on where China is today, let alone to where it's going to be uh, in the next couple decades. So, um, I think his strategy is to speak to the values, uh, um, ar- the values argument here in the United States, and and are you know really try and play up the idea of China as a uh, as a more uh, dictatorial actor uh, that is fundamentally at odds with uh, quote unquote Western Western values.
1: Just to make sure that people know where they can find that podcast. The podcast is called Hong Kong on the Brink.
0: Indeed, on the CSIS website.
1: Right, right, and you can download it presumably just from any old yeah, um, iTunes yeah, or what yeah. have you. Right, great, great, great. Let's let's shift now to talk about Beijing and Xi Jinping in particular. Xi must be aware of how, as you suggested, Hong Kong has had just such an impact on so many of, of the other issues that China is now facing. Just now, you mentioned Taiwan, which is approaching an election. Uh, it's certainly, I think, maybe given quite a bit of impetus to, uh, to Tsai Ing-wen and to, to the, the, the Greens. There's t- a tie-in, I think, to American attitudes, certainly global attitudes, really, uh, when it comes to Xinjiang and the atrocity happening there right now, and a, wh- a whole host of other problems that, that Beijing is now confronting. Can you talk about the way that these issues now touch on one another and, and how that might be affecting Beijing's thinking when it comes to Hong Kong?
0: Yeah, there's certainly a, a fungibility of these issues where um, I, I'm not sure Beijing understands just how connected these are in terms of the the discussion here in the United States. You know, wherein events that are transpiring in Xinjiang are certainly uh, affecting the calculus of demonstrators in Hong Kong who are thinking about folks on the margin who were maybe unsure about where they stood on. Uh, on 20, the question of 2047 or even before, are now suddenly confronting developments uh, up in the northwest of China, which are, as you said, are, are, are horrifying and certainly impact the way that you think about uh, what that eventual, uh, uh, f- you know, formal uh, and full reunification w- will ha- will look like in 2047. You know, events that are happening in Hong Kong then are ricocheting through through Taiwan, um, and all of these are are f- acting as catalysts here in the United States for existing frustrations and tensions and really in some some specific cases are are acting like rocket boosters right and so this is making an already complicated situation for for Beijing e- even even more complicated and i think what it speaks to is maybe not that they don't understand the fungibility of these but really what we're talking about is several issues that touch core Uh, core political concerns of Beijing are all flaring up at the same time, right? right? So all of these are territorial security issues, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, right? right? Mm -hmm. These are all the absolute core baselines. And they're all happening at a time when China's political system is undergoing some pretty significant transformations as we see it pretty rapidly move towards a um, how should we say more decentralized decision making or collective decision making model into a more centralized decision making model where Xi Jinping is the you know is the bottleneck of all bottlenecks in many ways mm-hmm. and is fighting multiple fires at the same time. I didn't even mention u s you know just u s china trade right of course u s china trade tensions um, and so I'm confused and concerned about the apparent inability of Beijing to react to these. More smartly,
1: yeah. It's it's really puzzling the inaction that we've seen. Although, I mean, I think it's fair to say that that the decision not to act may be the strategy they're deliberately pursuing right now. But it strikes me that that Beijing has definitely missed opportunities to de-escalate. Do you think that it is a deliberate decision? Do you think that maybe the idea is that by not acting, it proves that Beijing really does respect to some extent Hong Kong's autonomy? Is this all calculated or are they actually just paralyzed, uh, overtaken by events and maybe really frustrated by the lack of any good options?
0: The idea that that Beijing is giving space to Hong Kong to deal with this on its own and and as a a slight recognition of its autonomy strikes me as implausible given the stakes here. Um, That's sort of how they're spinning it. Oh, without a doubt. Right. Um, but we also see leaked comments by Carrie Lam to the effect of, you know, I don't have much political room here, you know, to, to move. Um, so I Those think- Those
1: could be viewed as self-serving too, though.
0: Okay. I think in the broad picture, it's very unlikely that that Beijing has suddenly decided that it's going to give a high degree of autonomy to to the to the government of Hong Kong to deal with what is arguably the most significant crisis the city has dealt with uh since since 2003, maybe with the national security bill, which was right. which was shelved, um, it's it's much more likely. Or the Occam's razor here is that you know Beijing has no good options, um, and certainly as it looks at the world and looks at its its base political lines, can, e, even though I think if they had conceded on the shelving of this controversial extradition bill in in let's say June,
1: right before June 12,
0: uh, before I certainly think that could have had the impact of. Uh, of uh, a slight gut punch to a uh, building momentum behind some of the more activist
1: protests. Could have taken some of the air out of it.
0: Yeah. Problem is, I bet you at that time when Beijing was thinking about its decision, you know, its choices, um, a concession of that magnitude would have been perceived as being, um, if anything, weak and 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 more likely that that was only going to incentivize more aggressive. Uh, um, demands by the protesters. it after, Beijing after looked at June
1: 12th, it. that certainly would have been the case. After the LegCo takeover, right, that they certainly right. would have seen it that way. So I
0: think as Beijing was looking at it, uh, a concession was was an untenable response. The problem is, though, I bet now they could. I wish they had a time machine, because even if that would have been, from, from Xi Jinping's perspective, a, 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 a weak concession, it's sure as heck better than the option set they have now, where this is metastasized into... Um, a, f- a full-blown political movement that has nationalist undertones, with or overtones, I should say, with things like a national anthem, now has dragged in. You know, you've got the U.S. Congress paying attention to it, and now this is severely impacting the prospects for a, a you know a loss for DPP President Tsai Ing-wen on on Taiwan. So, um, if they think the option set is bad now, um, you know, this is this is making a concession earlier on certainly would have been would have been a better play.
1: Right. A lot of observers have said that we should expect Beijing to do something ahead of October 1st, which is just, you know, coming up in a couple of days. Uh, the celebration, of course, for the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC. Others have said they're going to hold off until afterward. Uh, do you think the anniversary date matters at all in Beijing's calculus?
0: Yeah. I, look, that would be some pretty piss-poor decision-making if they had this very artificial symbolic deadline of October 1st and a parade. Um, the party has shown that it's willing to, to with, withstand international opprobrium if it feels like it's a core interest. They're going to make a calculation on, on, on Hong Kong based on the events on the ground in Hong Kong, not, not based on. Look, yes, it will be embarrassing if there's a million people on the streets on, on October first. That would that would absolutely not be the, the way that they wanted to celebrate. But the audience for October first is primarily domestic. It'll it, it will be the only thing that people will be following, or at least will be on coming out of the propaganda organs, they can weather a, a, a protest there, and they're certainly not going to preemptorily make a make a move uh, simply because of that day.
1: What about the other option, the other obvious option, which is let's just wait it out? They, they see things starting to fizzle out, I think. You you mentioned that part of the reason that, that um, Denise Ho, Nathan Law, and Joshua Wong are here in town and, at all is, well, because they, they feel like support might be flagging.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly think that's that's um, Beijing's preferred tactic here, partly because that's what worked in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you saw after three months or so, with some specific discrete measures on the ground, we should say that that the Hong Kong government was using to um, impede the ability of further protests or demonstrations to take place through administrative measures. But nonetheless, if you're Beijing, um, I think one of the reasons you've been delaying is because time has has typically worked on your side, right? right? People get tired, you wait them out, they go back to school, uh, the movement peters out. I think what's different this time, though, is there's elements of the protest movement which which know this as well, and they understand that the only way you keep momentum behind the movement is to continue to escalate. Um, And that's where, if I can quote from a, a great Piece that Richard Bush uh, at Brookings Institution wrote. You've got you've got sort of two hardline sides uh, of this of this who are who would rather fight than win, and by win he means find some sort of workable concession. And so even if the the, the, the majority of protesters are um, much more pragmatic in what they're hoping to get out of this, um, you can see a circumstance where more radical elements uh, on both sides, but more radical elements are are really driving the the forward momentum and where this goes. And, right. and look, the muscle memory of the Communist Party, when it feels threatened, is it will use violence.
1: Thank God that option hasn't been exercised yet. I mean, it's a cliche question by now, but wh- where do you put the odds of that? Very low. Right.
0: And I think for multiple reinforcing reasons, that's going to be the, the option of last resort. But before I say those reasons, Beijing clearly feels like the use of force is a credible threat, which is why it put... Videos. Those aren't police like troops. That. Like it, it's a remarkable statement, um, and it's a remarkable thing that in 2019 we were even having a debate on whether or not China is, uh, you know, CCP is going to use troops uh, paramilitary on citizens in an in international city like Hong Kong. That's pretty extraordinary, and that's not made up because they were making sure that everyone understood that that was the use of forces on the table. Hence, the show of the show of uh, PAP. There's a lot of reasons why they don't want to do this. I think, um, first of all is, even if you have a fairly pessimistic outlook on the decision-making of the Communist Party, I don't think they go around looking for instances to unleash violence uh, on the Chinese people. They would much rather find a a way to strangle the movement, to wait out the movement. There's also, look, this would be a, a nightmare if using the local garrison of, of PLA troops, or sending in even if it's a limited, you know, tactical squad of PAP to take over critical infrastructure like like the like the airport, that would be a Rubicon moment for public perception and international perception about China. I mean, that would have such a knock on effect here in the United States, whether they wanted to or not. That would be framed as Tiananmen 2.0. Sure, um, that would seal the deal on Taiwan, not just for this election, but maybe permanently. Um, Second thing is, uh, and this is much more cynically speaking, but you know Hong Kong is a is the great facilitator of ill begotten communist party wealth, <laughs> both as a as a store and as a transfer mechanism and you know to, to quote from my colleague Scott Kennedy, if you thought the Panama papers had some interesting stuff, wait till you see some of the papers and some of the law firms and banks. Uh, that are in Hong Kong. You remember right. the New York Times got blocked in Hong Kong for one story about uh, Wen Jiabao's wealth that was uh, – David Barbozo's piece. David Barbozo's piece together through publicly available records, a lot of those corporate records in Hong Kong. Imagine if we had the non-publicly available ones. So I think there's – look, I think there's a lot of reasons why Beijing is doing everything it can to, to put that off. I, I think to be absolutely clear though – if they feel like they've got an increasingly radical movement, which is articulating increasingly nationalist or statehood aims and that they don't have any good options, uh, international opprobrium is is better to deal with than, than an insurrection at your southern border.
1: mm and we have talked a little bit about how some of these prominent participants in the protests see things. Uh, I would refer everyone to the Hong Kong on the Brink podcast if you want a <laughs> deeper dive into that uh, and give that a good listen. Uh, one thing though that doesn't get talked about much is how ordinary Chinese people, people in the PRC, but also PRC nationals living abroad, how they tend to see things. I, I want to suggest that whether you're part of this protest, if you're somebody who's broadly sympathetic to its goals, uh, it-, it would help the cause. One would think to win over some sympathies from mainlanders for for a whole bunch of different reasons i 've seen many people argue pretty passionately that uh, there is in fact deep a oh, deep well of sympathy uh, for the protesters within mainland China, and that it 's only censorship uh, or fear of authorities that keeps mainlanders from openly expressing their their solidarity. I, it's obvious to me that there are some people. I mean, we had that famous MMA fighter who, for example, came out and boldly, you know, made a statement of support. He got some coverage for that. But I think it's a stretch to say that support is really widespread. I mean, even taking into account, like I said, how hard it would be for anyone to sort of, you know, have the guts to, 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 to openly express that kind of support. Just from my own admittedly small core sample, I mean, if I can extrapolate from that at all, I think the opposite's true part of this for sure is yeah censorship it's partially propaganda uh, decades of patriotic education but I, I actually think there's something pretty infantilizing about saying that you know Chinese people only have these attitudes because of, of this that that just isn't the case there are many people who've lived abroad for 20 30 years who are showing up at these these rallies in Vancouver in in um, in, in Australia uh, and and you know singing the national anthem and uh, that duel duel of anthems that we we're seeing happening in cities around the place, um, you know this nonsense to me about the national endowment for democracy in foreign black hands sure that 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 clearly clearly comes from from propaganda uh, you know it's honest to god fake news that that stuff but. Look, I don't think those things alone explain what I am seeing, what I'm hearing from the many Chinese people that I speak to about this. So first, Jude, what's your sense of how prevalent sympathy is for the Hong Kong protesters among mainlanders and how that compares like proportionately to apathy or outright hostility?
0: I think certainly going back to um, the 1990s, but, but even further back, we've always been surprised in the West, in the United States, when we see... Um, widespread organic nationalism in China, but especially after 1989, we've had this really uncomfortable and I think dishonest framing or unfair framing of, of nationalism, as you say, is always the product of of top-down propaganda. Right. Um, and obviously, when you speak to a, a wider selection of of individuals, you see that there's a really, there's an there's a incredibly complicated discussion Uh, about China's national identity, its national interests, and how issues of foreign policy tie into those. And it was my my great education on this was when I, um, 20 years ago, when I first went to China as a student, I was always surprised. I'd be sitting down with these, you know, latte-sipping liberals uh, who read F.A. Hayek, uh, but then would be uh, talk about Taiwan independence, and they would, you know, their their hackles would go up, and you'd right. see a, a completely the fire breathing dragon. Comes yeah, out, and, right. and that was that was a really interesting education for me about the complexity of nationalism. And I just look, I think of this as a uh, from a, a core national identity perspective. It's absolutely understandable how an individual, a Chinese individual, a student studying abroad, for example, um, looks at this issue and has a very different reaction than I do, or someone from Hong Kong does, in terms of how they frame it, how the issue is being framed. Pro independence movements, right, um, are perceived by the the area that you're trying to carve off from. In order to have a, a successful sort of pro independence narrative, you need to to paint the place that you're trying to leave from as 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 incredibly. Uh, negatively as possible, of course. Right, it has to be just the epitome of evil and and everything wicked in this world. That reverberates back in the home country, right, where people are now struggling with support for some of the aims of the protesters, for example, and and uh, probably having many of the same frustrations about a uh, uh, political autonomy, rule of law, transparency. But nonetheless, this is all being framed in uh, uh, in a way that is China has to be um, seen as the bad guy here. Um, and so you can understand right, rightly or wrongly whether you disagree or agree how that has how that reverberates out through the China community and mainland community who are who are in country and, and living abroad. Um, and so to your point, I think to expect that and we haven't seen it that there'd be some sort of widespread sympathy here on behalf of the uh, of the goals of the protesters, which is saying we want to basically leave the country that you're that you're from and you live in right. uh, would not be treated uh, uh, in the way that, that many had hoped it would be treated.
1: It's delusional.
0: Yeah, I, you know.
1: That sounds very uncharitable, but I, I, I feel like I see this a lot. I, I think it's
0: th- an un- unrealistic expectation of empathy, let me put it that way, to assume you're going to have widespread or even large support in mainland China right. for the aims of of Hong Kong. And as you say, we were talking about this offline, but— you know, folks from the mainland who go to Hong Kong, I think, still say, this ain't that bad. You know, what the heck that's are right. you complaining about here? And I'm not saying that's the right way to think about it. But I am saying that's a, that's a, look, I've been let's, hearing that. Let's from, do this whole exercise. Been, let's let's, let's, let's walk two through two decades, this. I've been hearing, I've been hearing that, yeah. which is.
1: I think this is very useful, though. I mean, what we, we should do here at this point is let's talk about uh, how, what that mainlander perspective is. If for no other reason as a foundation for you know, like you got to give a little empathy to get a little empathy. Right? If I let's- were
0: to simplify, which is a, a, a not a particularly helpful thing to do, but nonetheless, let's let's simplify. Um, prior to even the protests in 2014, right before things really kicked off, right. here, here's my um, here's how I would summarize, broadly speaking, uh, attitudes at least amongst my circle of friends from China about Hong Kong. Um, one a secret envy of Hong Kong because things were really good there in terms of the legal system, in terms transparency, judicial independence, pr- quality of products. You know, uh, but you had to keep that idea a little bit in check because you also had a you were frustrated a little bit about how many of the Hong Kongers flaunted it in front of you. Right, right. treated people coming in from the mainland. As you know, to Bowza, or or you know, as as crowding our subways, or you know, making life miserable for us,
1: Spying um, up all our milk powder, taking up our hospital beds, and, right. and
0: this really, you know, I remember, you know, for a while, you know, well before the tensions really became, I think, severe, you, know, you had already a complicated a perspective from from the mainland about Hong Kong, um, and. Any time you have any, you know, any movement that is or, 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 or group that is looking to cleave off of the core political unit, this is just basic tribal reaction, which is um, hostility and skepticism. Right. And it takes a remarkable feat, again, as I said, of, of political empathy to put aside your, your national tribal identity uh, and, and to, to broadly to empathize. And as you say, there are absolutely mainland individuals who, who are doing this, but I wouldn't say it's widespread.
1: The other thing that, that I mean, I think this is a baseline for the attitudes of a lot of mainlanders is simply that, look, before the handover, uh, Hong Kong was simply this glaring uh, vestige of a very shameful colonial past. Right. That that it was a reminder of this humiliation that China had undergone because of its own weakness since the mid 19th century. And there is this sense that its return in 97 was the writing of this long-standing historical wrong? I mean that that is like a. It's hard to to to, to get past that. I think, like as you said, most mainlanders honestly believe uh, whether it's and often it's because of the, the evidence of their own eyes. They've gone there, they've seen what's for sale in China, in in Hong Kong bookstores. They've seen. Uh, you know, they've had Falun Gong people walk up to them and talk to them and stuff. That these things that would never happen. Yeah. So they uh, they believe that Beijing has made a good faith effort to maintain that level of political calm. They they don't go deeper. They don't look at, at at a lot of the other issues. But of course, there's there's a lot of selection bias going on.
0: Yeah, and again, you know, but target the other way. Um, there's a significant level of censorship right now on discussion of Hong Kong in the in the mainland. That's so, right. um, I, you know I I think. We, we, I think what we're basically settling on is um, there was already a long and complicated uh, perspective by the mainland on Hong Kong, and we shouldn't expect uh, widespread support. But nonetheless, Beijing is clearly worried enough about how how high the levels of support are where it's willing to put its shoulder into uh, into making sure those discussions are scrubbed.
1: Right, right, right. That's There's no doubt about that. One thing that's become very clear to me is that both sides of this, both the mainlanders and the Hong Kongers, uh, believe that when they're going after the other side, they're punching up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? You know, we don't like to see people punch down, and, and most people you know, think that punching down is wrong, but that punching up is somehow justified, and that's precisely what they both think they're doing. Mainlanders are convinced that Hong Kongers have this you know, sense of their own superiority, they've always been privileged, spoiled, maybe, uh, and that you know, hitting them is in no sense punching down and then hong kongers you know just as rightly believe that the mainland with its sheer size its now you know economic clout and of course it's 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 you know preponderant uh, balance of force of coercion that they're punching up when they go after the mainland so both of them are are quite convinced that they're they're punching up um wh- what do you think of that i mean do you think that dynamic really feeds into this Feeling of of aggrievement and, and self righteousness on both sides.
0: Yeah, although the, as you as you're framing the question, the only thing I was thinking though is there there really is though an, an asymmetry of actors here because um, if this was simply a sort of mainland Chinese people and Hong Kong Chinese people, that would feel like an apples to apples discussion. Right. But really, the the what we're talking about, and this is maybe when I'll betray my own sort of perspective on this, but. Um, this is much more in the hands of – this is essentially the, the, the protesters in Hong Kong and certain elements in the Hong Kong government and back in Beijing. Um, and so that's why I think if I were to I, – I, I take your point, but I think in terms of who's punching up, um, it's the protesters who are dealing with a much more uh, – Of course, a, a, overwhelming. A, a, a overwhelming show, show of force. Um, but I do take your point that, that both sides are convinced of their, you know, of their rightness in this
1: let's talk a little bit about media coverage that's been given to events in Hong Kong. I think we can all we can pretty quickly dispense with the the coverage such as it is from, from the, Jin's yeah. on the
0: right. on the ground reports
1: <laughs> yeah, Chinese state media mm. um, you know has been especially execrable on, on covering Hong Kong um, I'm sure if Jeremy were here, he would have some choice adjectives and intensifiers that I would be obliged to beep uh, but what about coverage from major English language outlets uh, Have you seen any conspicuous bias, any blind spots, evidence of obvious agendas? Have you seen particularly laudable coverage by any media outlet that, that's been, you know, really, really in depth and has done a, a very, a, 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 a praiseworthy fair job?
0: I think one of the one of the problems with being extremely online, and I don't, I wouldn't say I'm capital e extreme capital E extremely online, but I'm enough online is I'm on Twitter, and that's where I get a lot of my. My coverage in a sense. I mean, this uh-huh. has really been, um, this is not new to have a, you know, to have the, the sort of revolution being tweeted, mm-hmm. but this is, um, you know, this is where I think a lot of us are now increasingly getting our information on it. And so what's been interesting and difficult for me is um, when um, when journalists and think tankers for that matter as well, tweet um you get much more of their personal opinion intermingled with what looks like the raw collection of information for their more formal reports. Right. Um, and this is just a – this is an issue we're all going to have to think through now because structurally and commercially, you know, journalists are uh, increasingly incentivized to be having a, an individual brand. Right. Um, that exists on Twitter and you can take with you from outlet to outlet if you, if you move. And so these are now more – this is much more personal reporting. Uh, as much as it is more institutional reporting than on your on your on your platform,
1: and there's one reporter in particular I want to talk about with, in, with regard to that, but we'll, let's get to her in a second. But please, yeah. Go on. And so
0: I, I I I feel like given that the press is so under fire right now um, uh, here in the United States and internationally, I, I don't I don't want to spend time sort of calling calling people out. I do just want to. Call attention to that, to that point, though. And I think we, we were talking about this before. I think it's my, you know my job, just as a as a think tanker, as much as I can to not sort of tip my cards and show on a given issue, you know, which side I come down on, because I think that um, that absolutely biases the the, the the way that the information is consumed by people. Um, and it's a fiction, for sure. We all have a personal right. opinion. Um, the, the Edward R. Murrow sort of generation of journalists or, or the Walter, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite well, these right. are the you know completely objective arbiters of the absolute truth. That's gone. But I still respect— If it was over there. I respect right. the convention. Um, and so this is just—I'd um, say that what we're seeing in Hong Kong, especially given just how extraordinarily divisive the issue is— where you have you know uh, reporters from, not, 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 um, not propaganda workers for state apparatuses, but reporters from the mainland who are working for foreign outlets who are reporting on the ground, and you have Hong Kong reporters reporting on the ground. And it's hard, I and mean, you can't imagine, it's impossible to not have a dog in that fight and sure. to not have an opinion on it. And I think t- Twitter blurs the line that is a little bit uncomfortable for me in terms of where someone comes down on it.
1: See, I mean, I think it's a very different animal when you're when you're doing that, when you're tipping your hand, uh, when you're talking to a domestic audience about a domestic story. It's a different game because there is this sort of a, a broader uh, understood context. But when you're talking about something that's happening on the other side of the world, which is just extraordinarily complex, yeah. it, it does not. It's it's not as black and white as is often pre- presented. Yeah. I think journalists are even under under a greater obligation to try to do that Cronkite, that Murrow uh, thing and introduce a little more context and try to be a little more deliberately impartial?
0: Yeah. So when I'm not on Twitter and I'm just reading straight news coverage, I, I continually am amazed at how high quality the work that is being done now across the board on just a series of extraordinary difficult challenges and extraordinary difficult reporting circumstances. You're know, just reporting in mainland China right now is is so difficult. You know, uh, Chun Han Wang, you know, from the Wall Street Journal, was just, right. was, just his, you know, uh, was just you know was just sent packing right. uh, for 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 his work, and he was one of the more you know careful, thoughtful reporters on Chinese politics. But the the point being, you're just not allowed to report on politics in China anymore. So I want I want that to be the kind of headline here. That being said. It's really when we go on to Twitter that I think we need new rules of engagement for all of us who are in this professional space of talking about you know these issues. How do we do so in a way that absolutely you've got your First Amendment rights, no one's challenging that. I think this is more a professional code. Uh, a, 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 as much as it is anything, and when the two bleed together again, as a con- as both a, a well married to a journalist, but also a, a consumer of, of of journalism, this is where I get ninety nine percent of my information. Uh, this matters deeply to me. That's um, right. But but um, uh, I think we're seeing in Hong Kong the stressing of that dual life of I'm a I'm a, I'm a print you know journalist by day, and then by night I I, I tweet my opinions.
1: Mm-hmm. Before we talk about what's happened to Jiang Fan, which is where, where I want to go with this, let's talk a little bit about the SCMP, which is in an interesting position, of course, uh, which is has long been the English-language paper of record in Hong Kong, but, of course, it was acquired by Alibaba. There was a lot of skepticism about how its coverage would be. How have they fared since this happened, since this broke out, not just in their coverage, but also on the balance in the editorial page?
0: I'm... Um I view the SCMP the same way that I view the Wall Street Journal. Um, when I stay away from the editorials, I'm extraordinarily impressed about the high level of you know of reporting that's happening. Um, when I see some of the editorials, that's when it. You know, this morning um, I rolled my eyes. You know, at, at a piece. Also, by the way, I was on the, the the main page. You know, the online page today, and the above the fold piece. That they had, you know, their most prominent piece was about how a a former uh, activist, I think, or someone who was involved in the the actual the real Baltic way uh, back in '89 was saying how in a in a written interview how the current you know Hong Kong way is is dissimilar and they should not even you know be pretending to make a connection. Wow. That's a little bit too much, like a Global Times. Story for me. Yeah, it's a little bit um, too much editorializing I, to put but into but a reporting you know, piece. But zooming back, I think the South China Morning Post, um, to give credit, has been doing some of the, especially since the 19th Party Congress, when there was some, uh, you know, since, since the 19th Party Congress, they've been doing some of the best reporting on China and on, on U.S.-China relations. Um, so, um, but I'm asking
1: specifically about Hong Kong and the protests, their coverage of the protests. Yeah, I'm
0: skating around that. Um, <laughs> It's a difficult position for them to be in. I think um, their coverage of it has, has been, I don't know. I don't know if I have a good answer for this one. Okay.
1: Fair enough. I'll let you go. Yeah. I I don't have a good answer. <laughs> let's let's get because, back to like,
0: you know, I know a lot of those folks and I, I just yeah. feel crappy.
1: I think we can leave it at, at the, the wall street journal analogy. I think that's, that's okay. a, f- a fair one. Well, let, let's talk about what happened to Jayang fan. you Probably followed that whole adventure on Twitter. Jiang's a good friend of ours, uh, or of mine, anyway. I don't know if you guys know each other. I don't know. Okay, okay. Uh, She's been on the show a couple of times. She's a correspondent, of course, for The New Yorker. Terrific writer. Um, She was recently dispatched to Hong Kong for the magazine. Uh, She talked about how her Chinese face and her Mandarin had proven to be a liability for her. Uh, She actually had some pretty nasty encounters with protesters who were suspicious of her because you know she was speaking Mandarin from the moment she landed, I actually called her earlier today. Just I wanted to run this by with her, didn't you know? Give her a heads up that we would be talking about her, and I just wanted to make sure that I I had some of the facts right. Um, so, what's your take on the whole thing? I mean, did it reveal as some people have suggested ugly truths about the protests? Uh, was it justifiable as other people um, have said? You know, the suspicion given what the protesters have experienced with agent provocateurs or with uh, undercover uh, mainlanders or whatever, what have you. Uh, what was your sense of that? It's a tough one.
0: Yeah, well, so the the video footage that, that she put on Twitter, which is um, irrespective of how you come down on this or how you're looking at this, just on a personal level, um, to see an in- individual scrutinized. Purely because of the, the the language that they speak or the way they look is indefensible, right. and I think we're we're getting into this very difficult period with not only the issue of Hong Kong but also U.S.-China relations, where we even even in this larger context of these political issues, um, keeping track of our humanity is going to become so fundamentally important. So, on, on a human level, it's it's there's no there's no argument or excuse for. Being accosted on the street, even in the context of Fu Yao, the you know Global Times reporter, who folks were saying you, you were sending in propaganda workers, he was the one that was detained at the, right at, the, the at the airport in another just shameful God, in
1: just another just shameful moment, beaten, which in again, sand.
0: in um, irrespective of your frustration and anger at the Communist Party and and the uh, um, undefensible tactic of embedding and, in, and using Communist Party uh, um, in, in ways that subvert, I think, um, normal rules of, of open societies, um, keeping track of your humanity is, is, um, is going to be crucial. Now, what I thought was interesting with her experience, though, is she also came out of that saying her, her faith and support and love of Hong Kong throughout the entire visit was, was enriched. Um, that she came away with such a, you know, a, a, a positive feeling about the city. And so what I think this really gets to is and why this is so important is um, what's happening in Hong Kong is really a battle for narratives, right? Both sides are are, are trying to gain the moral high ground, which is why um, you see state, you know, propaganda from Communist Party looking at um, instances of violence, and trying to extrapolate and generalize those to the whole movement, right. you see on the other side, you see uh, actions by the police, again undeniably violent actions, indefensible actions being extrapolated to the entire entire police. Um, I should say, as an American, though, watching how the Hong Kong police have uh, have have conducted themselves uh, is is quite remarkable. Yeah, um, yeah. but really nonetheless, restrained. this this isn't this isn't America, and so we, we have different expectations. So um, these these events and instances are important because. Um, Both sides are looking to weaponize them. And what's difficult for folks who aren't on the ground is to get a sense of proportion. right? So on the issue of violence, for example, um, we've got millions of Hong Kong people who are participating in these. Um, I think we know that this is a small number of individuals who are engaged in the much more radical violent as a fraction of the overall number of people who are participating, broadly speaking, in the movement. On the police, though, I think we can say the same thing. That of the overall thirty thousand plus police members in Hong Kong, the more sort of offensive uh, and aggressive actions are not indicative of the entire police force, but both sides are, are trying to really sort of crank up the narrative to uh, paint the opposing side as either blood, bloodthirsty cops or reckless rampaging protesters and that 's why instances like jiang 's you know uh, confrontation with the group of individuals. Is important on a human level, but also plays into this larger story of narrative. And that's right. F- and for fe- folks who are trying to say, and I saw this on Twitter, of aha, you see, uh, the protesters are, are you know are bigoted. The protesters are uh, xenophobic. This story played into that narrative.
1: Right. That is something that I think needs to be more squarely addressed as well. But uh, again, that's only a piece of this. The you know, focusing exclusively on that would be just as just as wrong. It's, again, it's a very complicated thing. Something that Jiang actually wrote in a couple of her tweets, though, plays into what we were talking about earlier, about the positioning that, that journalists should take, the, the stance that they should take. And she she had said, she talked about how, I want to make clear that I stand with Hong Kong and its struggle for freedom, which struck a lot of people, I mean, you know, as you can imagine it would, as just affirming this narrative that they've, they've convinced themselves of that... Western media organizations have an inherent inextricable bias uh, on behalf of the protesters. Now, I asked Jiayang about this today, and she said, I want to make it clear, I did not say I stand with the protesters. She said she wanted to make this more broad and to be talking about generally uh, her Deep concerns about the encroachment on Hong Kong's autonomy, as was promised. You know, about you know the extradition bill, the thing that everyone's already forgotten about that started this whole thing off. But she brought that up explicitly, saying that she opposed the extru- extradition bill. This was not about solidarity with any group of, of protesters. So just to make make that clear, and I think that's that's fair enough to say. She also said, I mean, and I think it's fair. In, in that moment, she felt like she needed to say that. She needed to to really make it clear uh, th- that she, you know, th- that she wasn't a plant there to to embarrass or to humiliate or to, to expose uh, bad behavior by the protesters. Well,
0: as look, well. The, the other thing, too, is all of these events and instances are, are extraordinarily messy and don't fit into a black and white dichotomy of, uh, you know, angels on one side and devils on the other, right? And that, that's that's where um, it's it's a bizarre development that we're seeing, and I think especially on on Twitter, but the, the broader narrative on uh, on, on, a, on a lot of these geopolitical issues and, and and domestic political issues of the inability to deal with complexity. Um, and this has always been a struggle. You know, George Orwell said the most difficult thing you know a writer has to do is is acknowledge the truth right in front of their nose. Um, so so moral clarity. Um, and, and comfort with complexity has always been very, very difficult. Right. But we now have tools tools and technologies which I think even, even strip away even more so our ability to, to deal with these complexities when it's either short form, 140 tweet, or we've got sort of images going viral and doing a lot of the work for us in, in terms of thinking these through. Um, but as with our conversation today about just for a moment, e- even if, like me, you – have a, a understanding of how the Communist Party acts as a more fundamentally illiberal political entity. Uh, that doesn't mean, therefore, that we throw away our ability to sort of sit in the shoes of a party secretary or of a mainlander who's looking down at the protests in Hong Kong and thinking for a moment, how are they viewing this?
1: That's right. And that's I mean, not, you know, that's not
0: saying you agree with them. That's not saying screw exactly. Hong Kong. It's back um, to cognitive
1: empathy, yeah. which is what I always i am all about. That, but you know, to your point about moral clarity. I think a lot of us suffer from this. Those of us who are sort of in the nuancers camp, we may drown ourselves in this bucket of gray paint, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's we can, we've all developed this sort of ability to play ourselves to a stalemate in the kind of mental chess when we, when we do uh, kind of sit here on one side of the board and then, you know, to the other side. And we're, we're, we're good at that and that's good, but sometimes, I mean, there is that, there's that threat of losing moral clarity.
0: Yeah, and I, I, not to stray too far from the t- topic at hand here, but I think more broadly, be, well, actually, I will stray because the issue of US China relations is central to how a lot of us, or why a lot of us, are, are, you know, why the US government is paying attention to events in Hong Kong. The two are tied. Um, but I think these issues are now increasingly being the, the camps are do you think fundamentally that? The the blame or the responsibility lies with the United States to fix things, or do you think the blame or responsibility lies with the Communist Party to fix things? Right. And so I think I maybe even you and I may come down slightly different on that. When I I'm may sure we do, I yeah. may lean a little bit more towards the Communist Party, um, but I think. We need to really be comfortable, or, or we need to recognize that this is um, this is a big discussion. And by by you know by Hua Qi Fang, let a hundred flowers bloom. And even if we come down on different you know different parts of that divide on where responsibility lies, having much more empathy for the number of players who can be a part of that discussion, I think, is going to be imperative moving forward. And we're way too quick. We're way too much on the moral druthers. Uh, and judgment than we are on 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 this empathy and ability to to recognize and understand the standing of people who come from different positions on the debate.
1: That's right. I think you know all many of the people I think in in our circle at least people who are in the org- this little organization that you and I are are, are part of. Uh, we recognize the magnitude of the problems. Uh, that we have with China, we recognize China's culpability in a lot of this. Uh, we recognize that a lot of them are rooted in fundamental values differences uh, with a country who, as we both you know very plainly recognize, is deeply illiberal. Uh, it's has values that are very much at odds with our, our own. But we don't necessarily think that the way uh, to solve them is to is to be just aggressively confrontational necessarily. Or not not across the board, in any case uh, <laughs> uh, and I think we we are still committed to diplomacy, we still are committed to exercising this cognitive empathy anyway, Jude, your words of wisdom are always uh very, very welcome here i i 'm I'm, I'm glad that we could have this conversation about this very difficult uh, subject. So a pleasure to talk to you as always. Let's move on to recommendations. Um, First though, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. Uh, This thing is just chock full of really really good reads on china delivered to your inbox every weekday so jeremy lucas jian they they just do amazing uh work they, they work very very hard very long hours to bring you what i, th- I think is a fine fine product it's just a uh, good value for money so sign up and spread the word Under recommendations uh, jude jeremy's not here so you go first what do you have for us
0: Uh, An essay written by the estimable uh, Richard Bush, uh, who's now at Brookings Institution, who I had the pleasure of of getting to know last summer when uh, I traveled to Taiwan with him. Um, People think of Richard as a a Taiwan expert, but he he attended high school in Hong Kong and has uh, written a a great book about about Hong Kong uh, after the the umbrella protests. But I want to recommend a shorter essay he wrote uh, a couple weeks ago, Called Hong Kong, how Hong Kong got to this point. Mm-hmm. It's available on the Brookings Institution website. Um, Richard is a, I think, a model of someone who has both moral clarity on on where um, uh, where the right side of values are, but also uh, a really distinct ability to uh, understand both sides of the argument. And he writes a very nice short essay, which for those of you looking for a, a good primer or looking to share a good primer with people who are trying to understand some of the complexity of, of Hong Kong today, I think this is a great place to start.
1: That's fantastic. That's that's, that's great. Um, my recommendation, I don't know if you've read this yet, but Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century by George Packer. Did you get to this yet? No. Oh, my God, it's fantastic. Just absolutely, I, I'm recommending to everybody, exemplary biography. It's just written so well. Uh, Holbrook in all of his complexity, warts and all, just... just and then I mean, there are warts. What, what a life, what an amazing person. What, what a fascinating character study. So yeah, I highly recommend it. It really is just an overview of the last 50 years or the entire really from from the late 50s all the way up until his, his re- fairly recent death, looking at all the events that he played such a, a critical part in from really from Vietnam where he was for very many years, all the way through the Afghan War. So, um, thanks a lot, Jude. That was just great, man. It's always great to have you. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, which I must say has just been particularly good recently, make sure to check out a double issue that uh, with Julia Lovell about Maoism. We have two shows focused on women, New Voices and Ta for Ta, also a fantastically good show, and the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. I do not want to leave out our brand-new family member, Strangers in China, which just debuted last week. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.